Check Me Out is made possible in part by the Friends of the Amarillo Public Library, Brick and Elm Magazine, and a grant from Humanities Texas, the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. When your body starts breaking down and you're like, I can't physically lift a woman anymore. Oh, that's so interesting. <laughs> wow. Wow. Um, so is that going to be... I'm stealing, that- your, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm stealing your line for Please. the story. I'm going to tell you that right now. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. Welcome to Check Me Out, a podcast for book lovers. I'm Amy Hart, and today we're going off the page with author Skip Hollinsworth. A little bit about Skip. Actually, it's a lot of bit. Uh, Skip grew up in Wichita Falls. He went to TCU in Fort Worth and then started working for newspapers in Dallas right after that. He has been a staff writer at Texas Monthly Magazine since 1989. He has received several journalism awards, has been a finalist four times for a National Magazine Award. And in 2010, he won that award for his feature writing for Still Life. He's also worked as a television producer, a documentary filmmaker. He co-wrote the movie Journey with Richard Linklater, based on the story he wrote for Texas Monthly. He also has his book, The Midnight Assassin, which was published in April of 2016 and became a New York Times bestseller. Uh, and he seeks to uncover the truth in the Thomas Brown case uh, with Tom Brown's Body, the podcast. It is my honor to welcome Skip Hollinsworth. How are you? I'm fine, Amy. Thanks for the introduction. It lasted just a little long. It was a little long. You've had a very successful career. <laughs> so I had to get it all in there. <laughs> I've had just a very elongated career. It, that's that's a, another that, way of putting it. I feel like that's a good problem to have, though, right? I yeah. mean, <laughs> uh, I'll take it. I'll take it. Because here's the thing. I mean, journalism is, it's a, it's a really cutthroat industry, but I also feel like those journalism jobs are getting kind of harder and harder to come by. So, Well, the world is shifting. I mean, it used to be that everybody had a subscription and Texas had a subscription to Texas Monthly. Yeah. And people don't read magazines in general like they used to. So, you know, there's a big push to make your magazine digital for, to capture all the digital readers who aren't going to subscribe to your print product. And to figure out how to get advertising for digital products. And, you know, magazines, a lot of magazines have gone out of business, but a lot of publications have done very well using a digital model. Not that this has anything to do with this interview, <laughs> and I don't know why I went on and on about that. You know what? You know, well, here's the thing. Like, I actually, that is how I started reading your articles in Texas Monthly was through the website um, because I love true crime. And honestly, you were, I think, I'm thinking back to like when I started getting into true crime and it's, it's your articles in Texas Monthly. So what drew you to writing true crime? I have absolutely no idea. It could be because I led such a plain vanilla life growing up. I was the son of a Presbyterian minister. When I went to TCU, I majored in music. I thought I would sit in the back of a symphony orchestra and play the cello for the rest of my life because I was good, but I wasn't great. And um, I got working for the school newspaper at TCU, and then I got hired by the Dallas newspapers. And one day, I was sent to cover a trial about a man who seemed to be a very normal fellow who happened to pick up prostitutes late at night and cut out their eyeballs with an exacto blade with such surgical precision that when you uh, shut the eyelids, you couldn't tell the eyeballs were missing. Mm. <laughs> and I was consumed. I just became consumed by that story. 
And I have no idea what depraved part of me was driven to go cover it, but I loved it. I think that's what draws all of us true crime people. I think we've, we we want to understand the why because it's so not something any of us would ever even consider doing. And we think like, why would, what would drive a person to do those things? So I think we all have that little curiosity in us, you know? We're fascinated by people who step over that invisible boundary to go from regular, ordinary person to killer, to serial killer, to bank robber, to jewel thief. You know, what makes a person who grows up just like the rest of us do take that extra step? You know, there's always this theory that people like true crime because it helps them protect themselves in case they ever get in that same situation. I've never really bought that. I think people love the drama of a story. And that's always what's drawn me to these kind of stories. Even though I write lots of other kind of stories, it is interesting how the true crime stories get more attention. I really love the way that you craft these stories. I think that's really important. And, you know, you take your time in telling those stories. How long does it normally, and I'm sure it's different for every case, but what length of time do you spend preparing before you ever print that story? Sometimes it can be up to a year. I mean, I'll be writing other stories, but I'll be working on that one story for a year to get all the facts right. You know, when you create a narrative, you've got to get everything. You got to know if the cop turned right when he got to Main Street chasing the crook, or did he turn left? And you've got to go back and back and back to your sources over and over and over to get all the details right because you can't make it up. You know, some of them take forever. But that's the value of writing for Texas Monthly. Our bosses give us that freedom to work on these stories until they're ready to be run. And, you know, you just don't get that chance at other magazines or newspapers. So let's talk about The Midnight Assassin because you're talking about, you know, we're talking about true crime stories that were kind of as they were happening or within recent times of them happening. So you wrote a book called The Midnight Assassin, and it is about America's first serial killer, which happened to be in Austin in the late 1800s. What are the challenges of writing something that's 130 years old? It should be in the annals of history as significant as the Jack the Ripper case. In fact, I was reading a book on Jack the Ripper And I saw this line in there that said some Scotland Yard detectives think that the killer in Whitechapel, the Jack the Ripper figure in London, came from a small city in Texas where, quote, a series of similar murders occurred a few years earlier. And I thought, what small city in Texas? (laughs) What series of similar murders? You know, crime was my wheelhouse, and I had never heard of this. And as it turned out, almost no one had heard of it either. And I began this kind of research process, which I learned, which could be the horror of doing history, which is, you know, you don't know what you're really looking for. You just sort of start searching archives and old newspapers. And uh, anything from the year 1884 and 1885, when these murders were occurring in Austin, anything that might shed light on it, somebody's diary, you would call people up and say, I heard you have some old papers in a trunk in your attic, just looking for the needle in the haystack. It was a long, laborious project where I took many side rabbit trails that led nowhere. And I'd have to retrace my steps and get back on the right road about a city that came under siege to a serial killer, which was a term no one even had heard of back then. 
and what the city tried to do to, pr- to protect itself from this one killer. From start to finish on that project, like when did you start working on it? How long until you published it? I hate to say this, but it took 10 years to do that. Yeah, thing. I believe that. Yeah. I mean, and it felt like it because there was so much information. And and, and like you said, I, I didn't even think about like acquiring that. I think like, oh, you just go down to the library and they probably have the old newspapers. And, you know, but I, I assume, like you said, somebody had in a trunk somewhere like that's wow. But there's no but at the but these old newspapers have no index. And they would just splash the stories anywhere they wanted. So you'd get the American Statesman for one day, which would be about eight pages. And you had to look at every story to see if there was anything about the killings going on. So the microfish machine down at the Austin Library became my best friend for years. And in fact, I was so far behind on the research and had written almost nothing on the book that the original publisher who bought it canceled the contract and made me repay the advance. Oh, wow. Which was not a happy time in the Hollinsworth household down here in <laughs> Dallas. Luckily, I got another contract with an equally big publisher, and uh, it became a bestseller, but I was panicking for a long time, thinking, what have I done? What kind of murky swamp have I stepped into with quicksand that I can't get out of? <laughs> My Library Does That, presented by Check Me Out, a podcast for book lovers. Did you know the Amarillo Public Library can help you find a job? The APL offers online resources that can help with creating a resume, searching for jobs, and completing applications. Plus, Learning Express Library provides online skill building and practice tests. And if you need additional assistance, APL staff can help you by appointment. More information can be found at amarillolibrary.org. Why do you think it was that this story did not garner a lot of attention? Well, the one thing we know about why Jack the Ripper garnered a lot of attention was because even though it was three years later, it took place in London, the greatest metropolis in the world at that time. And I think there were 20 newspapers that were being published in London when the Jack the Ripper hit. So there was all this competition. But that's not to say there wasn't the same kind of competition in Texas. I mean, the Houston had pay, every every city had a every city's newspaper had an Austin correspondent to cover the legislature, and they ended up becoming true crime correspondents covering these these murders. And so, you know, I was able to read whatever archives I could find from Houston, Fort Worth, Dallas, Tyler, El Paso. Anybody that any 19th century newspaper from the year 1884 to 1886 or seven, I looked at. I traveled the state. You know, I, I sat in little towns that had old old microfilm machines, just looking for something. It was a totally exhausting process. Stick with radio. <laughs> so swapping over to uh, Tom Brown's body, which is the podcast that you, um, are you creator? Like what is the, what is your official role in that? Well, I know there are these podcasting people that come out with an army of producers and technicians and people holding boom mics. I did, this is embarrassing, but I, but I'm an old fart. My daughter says that I'm a, my brain is technologically calcified and I didn't want all that equipment. I did the podcast. I did all my interviews on my iPhone. 
That's so. You know, impressive. I wandered around town. <laughs> I wandered around town and just held my iPhone in front of people and said, "Talk." And uh, you know, I liked the way it sounded. There was a gritty realism to the sound of those interviews. It wasn't the hushed, polished uh, studios sound that you get when you do those kind of interviews. You would hear the wind blow and the West Texas wind blow when I'd be interviewing people and you couldn't hear them for a while. And I just left it in because I thought that's the way real life works. I guess I was, uh, I did everything. And then I had, I had a guy, there there were guys in the Austin office who put it together, who knew how to, you know, read my script and put the sound bites in certain places, that sort of thing. But it was a pretty amateurish production, to be honest with you. Well, it doesn't sound that way. At all. Well, I don't mean that it was amateurish. <laughs> it was just like a just a little no, and, and small mom and pop operation. You know, I and we this is one thing that we try to teach our students here at Amarillo College is it's not necessarily the equipment you have. It is your storytelling abilities. We have students that are shooting short films on their iPhones. So it's really about the story that you're telling the emotions that you're putting out there, it's not necessarily that you have the best podcasting equipment. It's a great lesson to everybody to just get out and create. And that you don't have any excuses really anymore. We had an engineer producer in the Austin office who, you know, got music together. He composed his own music for it. We didn't buy music except for the songs that were being played when Tom disappeared the songs that Tom played for his friends the night he disappeared. This is what a mom and pop operation was. He wrote all the music, the producer in Austin wrote all the music. He put together all the natural sound. He did the bridges between scenes. And it turned out that, you know, and we did get a lot of credit for our technological expertise. And I wanted to say, are you kidding? <laughs> this is fantastic. It's really, really well done. I may have already listened to it twice all the way through and probably we'll listen to it again i just i just think it's just so well done so great well, job and it's that. also it's also out there i mean it's a story of the panhandle and what happens to kids in small towns and places in that part of the state and so i'm sure you know there's a familiarity to the story or to, because the characters are familiar oh absolutely then you have a private investigator arrive who raises all sorts of hell and whether you like him or not he makes great podcast material right oh yeah i mean he's the kind of character <laughs> that you invent you, you think you, you have to invent but there he is in real life Brick and Elm Magazine is Amarillo's lifestyle magazine. Launched by Michelle McCaffrey and me, Jason Boyette, this independent publication celebrates the people, businesses, and heritage of this area. Along with our flagship print magazine, Brick and Elm also publishes the Brickly email newsletter every week, plus Flavorillo, a bi-weekly food and drink newsletter, plus digital content at brickandelm.com. Brick and Elm highlights the lifestyle and culture of the Texas Panhandle. Brick and Elm is available online or at newsstands near you. Was there a reason that you picked that case specifically to do a podcast as opposed to doing just another article? Well, my editor has been saying to me, start looking for something to be a podcast. Someone told me 
about this teenager who disappeared in Canadian. And I called Laurie Brown, the editor of the Canadian newspaper. And in the limited way she told me the story of what had happened so far, I could see the whole thing as a podcast or as a movie or as something, as an audio documentary. So I headed out to Canadian with my iPhone. And I'm so glad that you went that route, honestly. I do feel like this was the time for you to do a podcast. I think they were very right in in steering you that direction, but you're right. These everybody that you interviewed, it they are it's like big personalities and everybody is a character and somehow everybody has suspicion on them when you're listening to it. It's very interesting. So, with that, do you have a theory about the Tom Brown case that you would like to share with us? No, because I'm being a reporter and <laughs> I'm not I'm not a commentator. Skip, I had a, to ask. Every, every, every person you see in Canadian has an opinion on this topic. On who did it, what happened, what happened to Tom, who did what to Tom. As much as I'd like to leap into the guessing game, my job is try to report the facts that come out as clearly and accurately as I can. But I will say that I'm not sure this case will ever get solved publicly until someone comes out and tells the truth about what happened. I still don't think so. people have told the complete truth. Some people have not told the complete truth. I mean, but that's obvious. We, we all know someone out there is not telling everything he or she knows. Oh, absolutely. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think there's a lot of people that aren't telling the truth. And, you know, I think sadly we're getting into where it's been so many years now and I mean, obviously, you've reported on cold cases and things that are, you know, obviously a, a crimes that happened 130 years ago. With every passing year, people start forgetting things. People start changing their stories. So I think it's just going to become more difficult if someone doesn't come forward and tell the truth. Yeah, I agree. I'll be waiting with iPhone in hand. <laughs> I'm waiting too. I'm, I followed, you know, the podcast. So I get the updates when you do, cause I'm like, Oh, I hope there's an update soon of something really good. But I did do this. <laughs> That's where we met when I did the update on Phil Klein, the private investigator's most recent press conference where he, he introduced a whole new theory as to who did it. And I just thought this story is never going to end by the end. But we're, within five years, there's going to be, you know, 10 more press conferences with 10 more new suspects. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think after listening to your podcast and, and going to, cause I went to the um, presentation that they had in Canadian and I literally just based on the way that you talked about them in the podcast, I'm like, Oh, there's that person and that person. It's like, I could pick them out of the crowd, which was very wow. interesting. Um, literally I'm like, Oh, I, I've heard about this person. I guarantee you that's them, but you describe them so well. You did such a great job telling their stories along with the entire story and painting that picture. What's next for you? What are you currently working on? And do you have any projects in the works? Well, every time I finish a crime story, I say, that's it. I'm doing something else. But then one shows up and one has shown up in Fort Worth about a 77 year old man who was arrested for a 50 year old murder. And it turns out that the police now think he was a serial killer in the 70s and 80s who murdered other young Fort Worth women. They set off a citywide panic. But 
he has done nothing since the mid-1980s, according to the police. So how does a serial killer not kill anymore? It's one of the questions in this story that I'm not able yet to answer. I mean, did he retire just like the rest of us retire at the age of 65? <laughs> it's giving but me it's Golden a, State Killer vibes, too, because he kind of just stopped as well. We never think of these guys as stopping. We think of them as Hollywood figures. They, you know, are obsessed and they kill to the very bitter end until they're caught or they're shot to death. No, some serial killers just quit. That's so they get diabetes. They have trouble. They have trouble getting around the town. They have trouble driving. All the things that they need to do to pick up a woman and kill her and be in dump her body and be in, get away with it. Yeah. Wow. When your body starts breaking down and you're like, I can't physically lift a woman anymore. Oh, that's so interesting. <laughs> wow. Wow. Um, so is that going to be... I'm stealing, that- your, I'm, I'm stealing your line for <laughs> the story. I'm going to tell you that right now. <laughs> so um, so that's, that's going to be a piece for Texas Monthly. Yeah, that'll run later this summer. Perfect. Awesome. Skip, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me. And it's always a pleasure. You're the best. Thanks. is recorded in the FM90 and Panhandle PBS studios on the Washington Street campus of Amarillo College. The show is produced by Hillary Holsey and me, Amy Hart. Special thanks to Stacy Clopton, Tanner Bass, and Colin Lutz. And thanks to Stevie Brashears for designing our logo and the Mag7 for providing music. Thank you again to our supporters, friends of the Amarillo Public Library, Brick and Elm Magazine, and Humanities Texas. Check us out on Facebook and hit subscribe wherever you're listening.